0: You know, part of the challenge, I think, as we bring in these sort of non-traditional providers into the healthcare space, is that we're asking them to conform to our rules and our ways of doing things. And we want to be careful about not doing that too much so that we lose the essence of what they bring to healthcare.
1: Claudia Williams and this is The Other 80. If you've just found this podcast, welcome. Check out season one as well, where we really laid the groundwork for this conversation. And I'd be so grateful if you'd share this episode, send it to a friend, post about it on LinkedIn, or send me a tweet at Claudia Williams with questions you'd like to see us tackle. Our guest today is Dr. Pooja Mitho. She is the chief health equity officer at HealthNet, charged with improving equity and care for HealthNet's 3 million California members. One of her areas of focus is maternal health. The facts and trends in this space are disturbing. First, maternal mortality is unacceptably high. The rate in the U.S. is 10 times what it is in other high-income countries. Second, it's getting way worse. It doubled between 2018 and 2021. Third, it is profoundly unequal. Black birthing people are 2.6 times as likely to die as their white counterparts. Under Dr. Mithal's guidance, HealthNet works with county systems, community leaders, providers, and families to improve health and safety for all birthing people and their babies in California. Dr. Mithil and I talk about co-designing with communities, reducing complexity for new partners, and HealthNet's move to implement a doula benefit. So please welcome Dr. Pooja Mithal to The Other 80. For some listeners, they'll know what your organization is, HealthNet, others won't. So if you could give us just a profile of what the organization looks like in California, who your members are, what your philosophy and goals are, and then we'll dig into some of your specific work after that.
0: Sure. So... HealthNet is a managed care organization. We're one of the longest serving organizations in California. We've been here for over 40 years. We have about 3 million members, two thirds of whom are Medi-Cal or Medicaid. And then the other third of whom are um, other types of commercial insurance. And out of those, about two thirds of those million are from the exchange. So covered California. And we're spread out very, uh, in very diverse places in the state. So we're in rural, urban areas. We have all kinds of languages, race, ethnicities, um, abilities, and um, veterans, et cetera. So we have a we have a very diverse membership.
1: You started by talking about your your background and your mother and the recognition you had very early on about the connection between health, justice, and equity. Um, I'd love to have you talk about how you approach equity, how you think about both the issues and the opportunities to improve it.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a um, it's an important question because there are so many ways to approach this subject and there are so many different avenues to think about equity. In. And I try and balance looking at disparities, right, which is inequities that are due to social constructs or, or social determinants, and instead sort of move towards thinking about equity as a whole, which is you know a much more progressive way of looking forward because equity measures progress, right? So the closer that we get to equity, the more progress we've made. And, and so I tend to not think about disparity as much, although of course, as a health plan, we have to look at where the disparities are and address those, but instead focus on what can we get to be a more equitable society. And for me, that starts with understanding who our membership is, knowing in each community what challenges they're facing, and looking at the strengths in that community, both in terms of um, the people and the strengths that they bring, but also the, the resources that exist within that community, and working to bolster those while also looking at where the challenges lie within the community and trying to help to fill those gaps.
1: What would be an example, when you did that analysis, you kind of realized that a different approach was needed?
0: Yeah. um, One example that I've talked about before, because I think it's such a powerful one, and it really does illustrate how we do our work as an organization, is the work that we did in the Central Valley around postpartum care follow-up. And so when we were looking at our data, we noticed that there was one particular clinic in the Central Valley that had pretty poor rates of postpartum care follow-up as compared to the other clinics in the area. And when we went in both with a medical director and our health equity team and started digging into why that might be and started looking at the data, it turned out that the group that had the lower amounts of postpartum care was actually an El Salvadoran group of women. And so, we went in and started really digging through and trying to understand where that disparity was coming from. And what we found is that those women have a cultural, a cultural practice that they follow called quarantena or quarantine, where they usually stay in the house for 40 days after delivery and don't really come out for anything, including their, their clinic visits. And so we brought a group to the table, including the providers from the clinic Um, Some community members who actually followed these practices and some people from our team to co-design what it might look like to, to improve this measure. And what we ended up settling on was a few different things. One, we educated the providers about the need for this cultural practice and why it existed and what types of our members followed the practice we inputted a question into the EMR that reminded or prompted the providers to ask, or providers or staff to ask about whether people followed this practice. And then we also educated the community members about the importance of postpartum care. And so, with all of those things put together, we were able to see an increase um, in postpartum visits in that group from 50 to 80%. And so, it really was a joint effort within the community using both the lived experience of the community and the wisdom that they bring in terms of educating us about, about their own needs and their own cultural practices. And then also relying on our providers who do want to do the best that they can for, for patients and make sure that they're meeting them with where they're at.
1: I've spent um, time working in West Africa and Southern Africa and the, a similar practice existed it's a very health preserving practice because yeah. it also at least in my experience in southern africa it was also a period when a woman was really nurtured and like taken care of couldn't do household tasks so it was a way to kind of give them the space they needed but what a beautiful example of kind of respecting and honoring that tradition and and the health healthiness of it well, right. also trying to merge that with something different. Thank you. Yeah. That's a great, I think, entree to something that you've said frequently, which is that equity starts with data. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about what that means to you. And then talk about what are the types of data that really you need as a designer of equity practices within an organization? And how are you going about getting those data?
0: Yeah, Um So I think when we think about data, uh, there are so many different types and I I always start with a baseline of race, ethnicity, language, and age, of course, um, to start to stratify and understand where the needs might be within our population. We also look at other types of data, including whether um, somebody has a disability or whether they have any behavioral health diagnosis. And then also Ideally, we are able to look at people's sexual orientation and gender identity as well. Now, I always caveat that to say that that is harder to get data for us. Really, it's it's a very sensitive piece of data and people don't always feel comfortable and trusting enough to share that. And so we're still really working through how to get that data at scale in the best way because I do believe that takes a one-on-one conversation that's nuanced. And so um, we're working through you know how can our call center staff ask those questions in a way that feels respectful and with cultural humility when we're, when we're interacting with people, and then looking at other ways that we can get that information through providers, etc. So we take all of this data, whatever we can get, and we overlay it with people's social needs. And quite often we're using, um, there are Z codes that allow us to get that data from providers, Um, but that's often incomplete. And so we're often using um, corollaries for some of the social needs. One of the things I found super fascinating looking at your
1: results was you mentioned the use of grievance data uh, and other qualitative data. That is not a data source I would have thought about. Talk talk to us about
0: what that looks like. Yeah, thanks for prompting me on that. (laughs) Certainly, yeah, I was talking a lot about the quantitative data we have, but We do use qualitative data broadly. Um, We do sometimes do focus groups, but our largest amount of qualitative data really does come in through appeals and grievances. And then from the grievances, we also take those and stratify those by race, ethnicity, language, and sexual orientation, gender identity. And using that, we pull out themes around whether people have experienced discrimination in their healthcare journey. And we use that to inform Practice both internally to see where our common areas of uh, friction with, with the healthcare journey, to see what we can make easier for people, but also to see where people are struggling with feeling like they're not getting the type and the quality of care that's respectful that they deserve. And we use that to um, interact with providers and, and give them that feedback and work towards um, teaching cultural humility if that's necessary. And also working closely with our members to understand better, right when they when they're having a bad experience. We also have community advisory councils, which are another rich source of qualitative data for us. We've heard uh, directly from our LGBTQ members that they don't really know how to navigate the healthcare system; that they don't know what to expect either from their plan or from their provider. And we've heard that from people who are caregivers of people who don't speak English. And so in response, we've developed a health insurance 101, which is going to be a two pager and also a presentation that we'll be able to get broadly to help educate people a little bit about sort of the basics of the things that are in their member handbooks, but are actually too complicated sometimes to digest from that source.
1: I love how all of these threads come back to the human experience, right? Of, of entering into a relationship with care and, like all of us, wanting a sense of belonging, a sense of, of knowledge and, and agency and all of those things that allow us to be more activated in our care and more able to make good decisions for ourselves. And um, I, I recently read a, a pair of studies in health affairs. The first showed that people who received navigation to social care weren't more likely to receive social care, which was a a kind of disappointing result and I think shows how much more is needed than just referring someone. But second, that people who received that kind of support and navigation actually had better health outcomes. And to me, and I I think there's a lot more work to do to try to figure out why that is, but it kind of makes sense that if you have somebody in your corner who's helping you navigate and think about uh, what your needs are and how to access them, that that translates into a wider range of choices and decisions that you might have had
0: before that engagement. I'm just curious what you might think about those results. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's why we're all so excited about so many of these new benefits that we have in California through Medi-Cal now. Um, And particularly as it relates to that, to the the two that come to mind, are our community health worker support, right? Which really is, um, that wraparound care navigation piece that allows people um, within their own cultural understandings with somebody who reflects them to be able to navigate the healthcare system, um, which is incredibly complicated. And then the other one, of course, is doula care, which, you know, when we take a look at where where there are really bad outcomes, right? A lot of that is in maternity care. And um, doulas help to play that role of not only... Helping to navigate the healthcare system, but helping to empower somebody to advocate for themselves, which, you know, I think that's often a really difficult um, place um, and space to interact within the healthcare system. And I always reflect back on my own journey. I had two preterm births, and I am an incredibly privileged person within the system. You know, both times actually, I was working as faculty. In in the OB department at those hospitals, like delivering babies, while I was not delivering my own, and you know, I'm a family doctor. I I have so much agency. I'm still in those situations. I was often very disempowered, and it was very hard for me to advocate for myself in those situations. And it wasn't until I had a dua who came in and helped me in my second preterm birth that I really felt that I had somebody in my corner helping to navigate the system with me.
1: Oh, that's great. And I know you guys, um, I was reading the results that you got from introducing a doula benefit. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you implemented that, how you developed the workforce, how you introduced it to the community, what the results were? Because it's such an exciting, I think- set of findings that I think bode well for this new benefit in California.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, we, so we ended up starting a community dual pilot in 2019. And this was um, in advance of these conversations that were going on at the state, um, mostly because as a, as a health plan, when we step back and take a look at uh, the outcomes, right, there are clearly big disparities in maternal outcomes, particularly amongst the black and the native communities. And so we asked ourselves, you know, how might we as a health plan come in and um, improve maternal and and infant outcomes in this community? And it became very clear that the answer would be um, doula support. There's a lot of longstanding evidence that doulas um, improve not only C-section rates, but maternal outcomes, maternal experience, birth experience. And so we ended up partnering with an organization within the community called Frontline Doulas and started essentially their their foundational startup of doula work. And so they brought on a group of doulas and trained them and they essentially ran the program really without very much interference from HelpNet because we really wanted to make sure that we were preserving the sort of magic, right? That sort of unknown that doulas bring to their work. And we're worried, actually, that if we got too closely involved in talking about how the benefits should be run or how the program should be run, that we might actually derail it a little bit. During that time, you know, we had some really big challenges. Primarily, I think now when I reflect back on it, I see that um, the the organization was a new organization and they were incredibly talented but starting out and sort of having growing pains as any organization would. And because we did not intentionally come in and sort of break down that power differential that naturally exists between a large organization like ours and a very small one like theirs, um, they ended up really treating us like as a funder. and um, And we didn't come to the table early on enough to co-problem solve together, I think because they were worried about disappointing us or, or seeming like they were not meeting, meeting what we were looking for. And so we did struggle early on and coming to that equilibrium of how do we come to the table together as partners and not as, as, you know, a funder and a CBO, for example, and so we had some really tough conversations and tough interactions, but I'll say, I'm really proud to say that we stuck through it and we worked through those. And um, we have a continued partnership with Frontline Doula's to this day. They're an incredible organization. They're based in Los Angeles County, doing not only uh, doula work, but also training other doulas, supporting people within the community. I mean, just doing incredible work. And um, they are one of our doula providers now. And we've done other work with them over the years. And so it it, it is a really beautiful story and that we were able to get to a place where we now have a very strong foundational relationship that we've continued to build on in other ways. It was quite a small pilot in the end. We had about 89 women Um who were part of the pilot. And we saw a very significant reduction in C-section rate, about 50%, um, and also a significant improvement in prenatal and postpartum visit attendance. But we weren't really powered to see uh, preterm birth or infant outcomes. Um, but directionally, we saw a decrease overall in preterm birth as well.
1: And as you think about that base in two respects, one The learnings from the organizational work of learning how to partner in a new way. And second, the new doula benefit that will allow you to scale this much, much, much broader across your whole membership. How are you thinking about rolling that out in both respects, delivering this benefit statewide and also figuring out how to partner in effective ways, learning from what what happened before?
0: You know, part of the challenge, I think, as we bring in these sort of non-traditional providers into the healthcare space is that we're asking them to conform to our rules and our ways of doing things. And we want to be careful about not doing that too much so that we lose sort of the, the essence of what they bring to healthcare. And so we've been working on doing things like simplifying the application, um, supporting understanding billing. And those kinds of things, right? How to manage care 101. How do you really work with a health plan and do that that administrative piece while still being able to maintain, you know, your day-to-day work? And then I think the other key piece is we've been trying to advocate within the hospital community for duos to be better accepted. And I think a really big part of what the success of this benefit is going to be really integrating duo's into care teams. And so how can we as a health plan sort of use our power to bring that to the table? And so we created a letter that we sent out to all of the hospitals within our network that we've actually shared quite broadly with anybody who wants to use it that, um, that delineates what the, um, uh, the benefits of bringing doulas into the birthing team are. And toolkits for being able to support that integration into the care team. So I think actually that's that's a place where we can bring a lot of support is is advocating for um, for being accepted and integrated into the birthing care team. We've advocated for a, a at least a better um, reimbursement rate than in many other places, and I think there's still room to go in terms of that. But but it's a um, it's coming close to a living wage the reimbursement rate. Um, We also have, um, been able to advocate for a way to grandfather in or, or having this sort of legacy pathway for people who've been doing the work for many, many years and, um, having them be able to come in, um, without having sort of a new or more recent training that you can sort of show has all the components that are required. I think those are two, um, good examples. And then the third really is that the doulas were at the table, um, advocating for all of the little things that uh, truly make the benefit um, something that's sustainable, right? So how do we structure how many visits people get? How do we structure the part where we're asking someone to be the referrer for the benefit, right? How can we make that a low bar to make it easy for people to actually get in and use the services and not create um, unnecessary barriers, kind of maybe transitioning into the
1: CalAIM work, and you are one of the plans implementing the CalAIM uh, benefits, which means that you've been rolling out uh, the 14 social supports, community supports that are part of that. And by definition, that means you're working with a whole bunch of probably some old partners, some new partners. Like you've said, you know that means developing contracts, billing, uh, figuring out how to refer people to those services. And you're doing it not just in a single community, like we've heard from some other people, but really across the state. Take us into on the ground into that work. Um, what, How did you go about planning it? What kinds of partnerships have you developed? What were some of the things that went really great? What were some of the places where you had maybe more
0: challenges? Love to hear about that. I think what we learned early on in that process was that this is so foreign to all of those people to have to start to interact with plans in ways where they're providing claims and, and, um, and having to bill and um, having to contract all of those pieces that are actually so complicated. And so what we found was that it required intentional co-build, right? We were on the ground in those communities, working with those organizations and iterating together. To um, simplify things, learning where there were um, where there were pieces that were too difficult for people to be able to overcome, and so we did a lot of training for folks, and then coming back and supporting them in specific areas. and And what we've noticed is that it's it's been very slow in terms of getting uptake of the services. And I think that that's a place where we are now putting quite a bit of focus is how do we educate the providers of the members, right? The doctors about these services, that they exist and that they have access to them for their members so they can start to make those referrals because many of those community supports do require that the provider makes the referral for the community support, particularly the asthma one is is one that comes to mind. And so even though these services are incredible, right? Like we can come in and we can um, you know, do asthma remediation in somebody's home so that they have less flare ups. We are having a hard time getting providers to understand that the services exist and be able to refer people and, and start to get people to use this incredible benefit.
1: In our conversation with Sachin Jane, he said really interesting things. He said, I think there's tremendous power in being a national organization that really believes in community first so i'd love to have you talk a little bit about kind of what what are the opportunities there but also where are the tensions there
0: yeah i mean i think that it is a real question and it takes a lot of intentional work on our side to really be able to do the local piece and so um, how we've solved for that within our state is we have um, five different regional teams and um, those teams Sit within the communities that that they serve, and we have a vice president over each of those teams and they have their own team in each region that is able to go in and have deep relationships with all of the folks within the community, local health jurisdictions, schools, uh, uh, libraries, and and sort of all of the community-based partnerships that we need to be able to be successful in, in an area. And so those five regional teams are part of how we do that locally. We also have um, a team called our member connections team, which is a highly trained team that actually goes out into the community and goes into people's homes to provide support if they need it or, or to outreach to people who may have um, sort of fallen out of care. And those teams are truly embedded within the communities because that's where they live is where they work and they go out and do those, those house calls. And so we've been, um, building that uh, local piece for many years now, and it really allows us to show up and shine in a region as being deep, um, thoughtful partners, because we understand that region well, because we live there. And then in, in terms of as being part of Centene, you know, I think the beauty of being part of a large national organization like that is the ability to scale up on those best practices across across the country it's striking me
1: that somebody in your shoes you know you you're a medical doctor you bring the clinical expertise you understand the 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 health issues going on in the community but this is also kind of social justice community organizing work <laughs> and that's a lot of i'm i'm so i feel so um i'm so happy that you're in that role and it's kind of making me wonder as we think about the teams that are rolling these things out and plans and providers how to provide that kind of deeper, broader way to think about the systems change in healthcare and power. One of the things we talked about in advance of the call was the place-based work you're doing. How are you approaching the place-based work across
0: California? And during the COVID response, when we were trying to get vaccines out to people, is where we really started to build upon the foundation that we had with these regional teams and think about what it means to do this deeper work within the community. And so. As we rolled out uh, vaccines and tried to get a more equitable vaccine response, we started looking deeply at communities and through um, our ability to geomap and look at what the strengths of the communities are, we went in to develop community partnerships that would help us to close some of those gaps. And as we did that, you know, we partnered with with CORE, which is a large national um, organization that does community relief work and they um, had an incredible person who her name was Aisha and she was running our response in the LA and Butte area and um, she went in and created these relationships with community-based organizations that were serving the Black community in all of these regions. So for example, in LA County, you know, we we talk a lot about the lack of trust within the black community and how that was a driver of lack of vaccination. And when we went into LA County, we, we realized that of course trust was a huge barrier, but actually another big driver was that there weren't any easy places for people to get vaccinated. There were not in South LA big box pharmacies that were open um, all the time, including on weekends. So if you weren't willing to leave work during the middle of the day, and you couldn't get vaccinated easily. And so through learning that, we were able to bring these community events where we were providing vaccinations on the weekends, and we actually vaccinated a lot of people. And so it was through that experience, it gave us insight into the need for more um, community-based, qualitative understanding of what's going on. And so We started working with Health Begins, that is a a large um, equity partner of ours, and we're really fortunate to have been working with them and learning from them. They helped us to start designing this idea of health equity improvement zones, where we can um, put clear boundaries around defining a community, what that community looks like, and then in those zones, starting something called community impact councils. These are essentially community driven, um, not health net focus. So um, unlike our community um, advisory councils, which are our members and, their, and our members' families, these are meant to be um, anybody who wants to participate, whether that be a CBO or an individual within the community, can come together if they're interested in improving the health of their community. We'll provide them data about where the issues are in terms of health within the community, and we will provide them funding And they will have the ability to implement an improvement project within the community that impacts health. And as we're thinking about this, it's quite broad, right? Unlike some of the other disparities work that we do that is really focused on closing a care gap, this can be something as broad as we need green space within within our community, right? To be able to thrive and we will be able to fund that. And so we are planning on launching three of these, the first three of these in the first six months of 2024 and are really interested and excited to see how this next iteration of our place-based work will allow us to truly come into communities and impact health.
1: And I love the the ripple of your theory, which is that the ideas and strength lies there already, but isn't always connected to resources or channels to implement. And so those are just, it's a beautiful, it reminds me of my friend Nick Dawson when he was the, Head of Innovation at Sibley recruited ideas from DC citizens about how they could improve health, and then brought his whole—he had all the design teams, which you probably do too—to um, help them kind of iterate and design those interventions. And just incredible ideas came forward through that process. Wonderful! I can't wait to hear what what comes out of that. We talked before a little bit about this finding from the California Endowment. They invested a billion dollars in building healthy communities in California. And in the end, they concluded it all comes down to community power. And the kind of quote from their materials are investments that enable communities to advocate for their needs and claim seats at the table. And so I'm just really curious how that conclusion connects to this new work you're doing and how you're thinking about that
0: yeah i mean i i think that's why it's going to take us some time to build it because that's what we're being very conscientious about right is and and i don't like the term uh empowering communities and i think uh, in that quote you hear very clearly building community power because the power already exists within the community and what we're trying to do is sort of shift some of that narrative so that um so that it's it's not us bringing the ideas but it's really the communities. um uh, what's the word, trying to uh, amplify what already exists there and, um, and tell us what they need. And so that's why the long sort of lead time on it, because we have to think about how we can um, establish those relationships at the ground level in a way that en- enables us to build community power and not disrupt that in any way. All right, we're, we're
1: heading to the wrap-up and I always close with two questions. The first question is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way?
0: Yeah, um, I think one of the hardest lessons I learned, particularly through some of this community-based work, is that um, having a good intention is not enough, that you have to show up not only with humility, which we do, but also with with the ability to understand upfront what the community might need and be responsive to that in a way where you are being active, an active participant, right? You're not a passive learner in that. And so, you know, I think it's that intention is not really, it's not the end of it. It really has to do with how you show up and and how you um, correct mistakes when mistakes happen. Mm, that's great. And finally, what's a question you wish I had asked that I didn't? You know, I think maybe one one thing is sort of what what drives me, or like how do I continue the work? Because I think that's something that especially people who are doing a lot of health equity work are constantly confronted with: is this um, is this feeling of exhaustion, or or how hard the work is, and For me, there's a couple of different ways that I approach that. One is I try and think about the power of radical incremental change. And so, you know, how every little thing that we do actually has the power to have ripple effects that improve health for people um, broadly. And so that's one way I sort of combat that. And then the other is really coming back to my why, like, why am I in this work? Why does it matter to me? And what am I trying to accomplish?
1: I love that I often almost envision a pebble in the pond right because it helps us visualize what that actually it looks like and I think we've all seen places where the positive energy ripples positively and negative things <laughs> ripple negatively and so just like really coming back to that idea of of every every step every step matters um thank you so much for joining and just offered such beautiful um insights and examples. I love the connection back to the work of your mother and the ground that she laid for all of us and for you. Um, and thank you for joining.
0: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Claudia.
1: I wanna thank Dr. Methel for joining me for this important conversation. It really echoed my friend Jen Palka's new book, Recoding America. In the book, Jen talks about the importance of iteration, building with users and not letting complexity get in the way of providing a great customer experience. It's clear Dr. Methel is working from that same playbook. As she describes the approach, it sounds so easy and natural, but in a large national organization, With all the associated complexity and risk aversion, what she and her team are doing is truly remarkable. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Klass. Check out the show notes for more information on HealthNet's equity efforts and our guest, Dr. Pooja Mittal. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.